Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory and even characterizations, all came together over time. They were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who was writing them and even who was watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. Today, we're doing something different. Today, we're not just talking about Trek as it is. We're talking about Trek as it could be. We're once again joined by our friend Dylan Roth, co-host of the podcast Are You Afraid of the Dark Universe? in which he pitches ideas for the never-completed interlinked Universal Studios monster movie blockbusters. Well, we've decided to take a page out of his book and develop our own pitch for a new Star Trek series. Consider this the first meeting of the writers' room for Star Trek, after the fall. One thing that's been consistent about Star Trek from the earliest days is the idea that things are going to get worse before they get better. Sometime in the then future, Earth was going to be wracked by a series of wars and disasters, which ultimately resolved themselves only with first contact with the Vulcans. But how do we get from there to here, or really from here to there? How did the human race pull itself up from the nightmarish atomic horror and eugenics wars to help build the Federation and the Star Trek world? From Mad Max to Maximum Warp, from Half-Life to Life Science, from the Omega Man to where no man has gone before. How can we make a Star Trek show about this time frame, which remains in some essential sense Star Trek? Good morning, I'm Douglas McDonald Norman. I'm Adam Prosser, and... With us uh, is... And I'm your special guest, Dylan Roth. <laughs> Great to have you there, Dylan. Welcome back to the Merry Universe. It's wonderful to be back. I had so much fun last time I was on the show. Amazing. Yes, very cool. So yes, uh, we today we were going to look at uh, the idea of um, sort of coming up with our own Star Trek series, uh, as mentioned. Um, we had... Um, uh, I, I know that a problem that Star Trek has been facing for about 20 years is that it's been uh, hung up on prequels uh, for a long time. Um, so if it was even a few years earlier, I would have groaned and rolled my eyes at the suggestion, even as a even as a lark. But of course, uh, now that we're finally moving forward a bit more with the Star Trek uh, series, I think it's okay to sort of go back and uh, and look at uh, the past of, of Trek. And, and it's an era that I think has become increasingly fascinating uh, to me, uh, which is the... Uh, Again, the, the 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 bad years, the the post-atomic horror, the eugenics wars, uh, the nuclear wars, whether those are the same thing. Uh, of course, the rise of Khan, although that actually predates the period where we want to talk about. And then eventually first contact with the Vulcans. Um, in our episode, uh, Tomorrow is Yesterday, we actually talked about how Star Trek uh, depicts history and historical evolution, which is, uh, I think, really interesting because it's... Um, um, not necessarily the intention of the writers, but they 
just through this accrual of historical detail <laughs> to Star Trek, they've ended up saying something rather interesting about history, which I think is very true, which is that history doesn't move in a straight line or with a straight evolution. And now that we have Discovery uh, in kind of a, a setback for the Federation and moving forward, uh, we see that as well. History doesn't just progress towards an endless uh, state of of terrificness, even in the Star Trek universe. There's setbacks, there's uh, backs and forths, and uh, the various issues with 20th, 21st century Earth that Trek has dipped a toe in uh, speak to this, because there's all this conflicting information and s possibly seemingly self-abnegating <laughs> information, if that's the right word, uh, but I think it can be made coherent into one uh, one storyline about what happened in the immediate future of our world up until uh, the world of Enterprise. Um, so um, we were going to uh, I, we're going to sit here and we're going to pitch uh, the idea of what that uh, entails. Um, and um, so uh, maybe I will give it to Dylan to start with. Uh, what is your? Let's just talk first of all. What's your general impression of this? Uh, post-apocalyptic era of Star Trek. What 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 do you think sort of broadly characterizes it? <laughs> I guess would be the question. I feel like it's like a slow process of waking up from a nightmare where uh, once you've regained consciousness, you're able to you're still kind of organizing your thoughts. What of what I just experienced is real and what isn't? Uh, I feel like there's a an opportunity to explore that sort of liminal space where you feel like a crisis has ended, but as you said, it doesn't happen overnight, and there's aftershocks, and I think that it's potentially uh, really relevant living now in a time period where it it feels very often like it's the end of the world, and then you have these glimmers of hope, and then you have these pits of despair. Uh, we all look to Star Trek as this beautiful, idealistic future that we can work towards, but it's sometimes frustrating to think they're like, but how do you how do you get there? How do you make it happen? Of course, if we like super had the answer to that, maybe we'd be there already. But to an extent, I think it's exciting to tell that story and potentially more inspiring to be like, you think it's bad now? Here's how worse it could be, and we're still gonna turn it around. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I think it's Part of what frustrates me about Enterprise is that in some respects it's a midway point between the later Star Trek shows and our world, but that a lot of the stuff, the basic groundwork for Star Trek is already sorted out by then. Earth is already a unified entity. I certainly don't recall any mention of money on Enterprise or of the idea that it's a more capitalist economy than what we have now, a more more capitalist economy than what we have in the later Star Trek shows. Um, there racism among humans seems to have been largely displaced into Archer routinely like making life miserable for his Vulcan subordinate. The It's definitely not quite the Star Trek world that we see in later shows, but a lot of... But it is a considerable distance removed from our world. I think there's something potentially really meaningful to be shown in filling in that gap of addressing contemporary issues, showing how... the not just having Star Trek as an ideal, but making it clear that it is an ideal that could be achieved from where we are now. I th part of my worry about that kind of show has always been that it would be didactic, 
that it would be even more than other Star Trek shows foregrounding the idea of how to achieve social progress rather than that being incidental to the stories that it tells. But I think Star Trek at its some of Star Trek's greatest moments have been when it's been a very didactic, moralistic show. And I think a show like this explicitly advancing an argument against the contemporary world could have a really interesting and important place. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I think that's... That, I think, uh, Dylan, you both kind of said it, which is that it's... Odd, it circles around to being very relevant for our time. Like, the original Star Trek wanted to portray, like, they were very clear in the original Star Trek that there was at least a limited atomic exchange, uh, a show that was written in the depths of the Cold War. So, of course, they were basically confronting head-on one of the biggest fears of the era, and they were saying, but we're going to get through that, we're going to get past that, then there's going to be something afterwards, and in fact, it's going to be uh, much better. Um, and... Uh, it's funny that that like never went away. Star Trek never stopped saying there was going to be some atomic exchanges in the future, uh, but it got very downplayed during the Berman years as the Cold War kind of receded in the rearview mirror. Um, but it is interesting and fascinating to me. And I think Douglas was the one who pointed this out to me. Maybe it was during our conversation last, uh, last post-show conversation last time, how um, it, the, you get the Vulcan uh, first contact with earth in 2161. Uh, and then, the date of the post-atomic horror that you get in uh, in Encounter at Farpoint is 2079. Um, and those are actually f a couple of the very few specific dates that they give to this stuff uh, in Star Trek. So what I'm going to propose uh, going into this pitch here is that uh, that is not a conflict. I think we can't really do anything about the eugenics wars being set situated in the 90s, which is the other date that we get stuck with, unfortunately. Uh, so for this show, I want to propose that it is set around the time of uh, what we see in Encounter Farpoint with Q in the big chair, with the crazy post-apocalyptic court of, uh, of uh, holding court, this, this uh, uh, dystopian authoritarian regime with guys in very funny, dorky, uh, but heavily padded uh, security guard suits, um, which is, again... That's uh, almost 20 years after what happened in First Contact. And I will posit to you that that is not contradictory at all. We do see in uh, First Contact um, that they're setting up this launch for, uh, I believe it's called the Phoenix, the first uh, warp-capable uh, ship that uh, Zephram Cochran wants to build. Um, it's, on the one hand they depict a world that has some of the elements that we would be familiar with as a functioning society. Uh, Zephyr Cochran talks about how he's doing it all to make money, that he takes the train. Like, it, in, on some level, what he's doing has just day-to-day -day living in, under capitalism engraved, engraved in it, under a functional uh, neoliberal capitalist society that we're all used to. But in another sense, one of the first things that we see when we see Ruby and Zephram is, oh, is it another attack? Is it the enemy? Uh, the implication that they've just gone through a massive conflict that did in fact damage, at least damage the infrastructure of the United States. Um, and that they're out sort of in the middle of Bozeman, Montana, and it's, uh, it, it's it, like presumably because maybe the cities aren't that safe or maybe the, the more populated areas aren't that safe. Um, so that seeming contradiction is right there uh, from the beginning. And uh, I think 
somebody said about um I, I can't remember who said this quote it was a great quote uh and it, it sort of summarized actually cyberpunk specifically but science fiction in general which is the future is here but it's not evenly distributed yet and i think what you could what we could say when we're yes. talking about this era of star trek is that uh the po the apocalypse is here it's just not evenly distributed yet basically <laughs> um so there are going to be places that are the post atomic horror and there are going to be places that are still limping along functioning something like uh the world that we know and love and in fact uh that since warp and warp drive was invented uh that there uh could potentially uh, before i move on i guess i'll i'll toss it over to dylan again uh do you have any thoughts on what i'm saying there dylan Yes, I agree completely. Actually, I'm very excited by what both of you have talked about. Uh, I like that we, I think that so that Star Trek is kind of in its DNA, a little bit didactic all of the time, but so long as we root our story in characters and in specific experiences, then it doesn't have to feel like a philosophy lesson. Some of our favorite Star Trek episodes do, but not completely, because we still care about the characters and we still think it's an interesting thought experiment to play out just as fiction. But I'm also very into this sort of unequally distributed apocalypse thing, because I think it very much reflects the sort of crisis that our planet is facing in the future, where, in the near future, or in the present, in, in climate change, in that there are parts of the world where climate change is already a, an, an, a catastrophe that you can't ignore in your daily life. Um, and then there are places where we get to still pretend it's not happening, or willfully work... Uh, against the forces trying to combat it uh, because it suits us. Let me tell you what, if you're waist-deep in water or all of your crops are dead or all your livestock is dying, uh, you're not denying or <laughs> you're not denying or profiting from climate change anymore. So I think that the idea of the Vulcans have arrived on Earth, and they're not very interventionist as, as a rule, right? They're cautious about doing this whole thing. They might not be, it might not be in their agenda to save the earth all at once they might be conducting little social experiments and picking little and 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 picking favorites and those might be bad choices um i like the idea that we could potentially tell our story on a global scale with different pockets of the cast in in, in different in what feels like what could really feel like a completely different planet but that's how different parts of our planet can already feel right we have we have the global north we have the global south we have you have coastal cities, we have the Midwest, we have um, all these different kinds of not of cultures and biomes that would be affected differently by both the very easily predictable crises of our real future and the fictional ones that have only been sketched out for us in the existing uh, Star Trek continuity. So I really, really like the idea of a world moving at different speeds in a fragmented world. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in country Australia and dad always used to talk about a doctor he worked with who was from East Berlin who after spending years, decades living on the nuclear front line had moved near us because it was the one place that absolutely no one would bother to target in the event of the <laughs> nuclear war. And so the idea that you might have nuclear, you know, it might be 2063 in Bozeman, Montana, but it's still solidly 1955 in Iowa. <laughs> They're just turning up to the county fair and voting for Eisenhower. Um, uh, and, yeah, the idea of a world moving at different speeds and how the Vulcans interact with a world moving at different speeds is fascinating to me. Some of what Dylan has mentioned actually seems... It, it raises intriguing parallels to 
what IDW did with some of their Transformers comics in terms of how first contact with the Transformers transforms Earth, that you have different nations doing deals with different factions and sub-factions of the Transformers, that just because Americans and the Autobots share ideological similarities, that doesn't mean they're not going to deal do deals with the Decepticons if it is in their immediate interest to do so, or if they've fallen out with the Autobots. It's not a question of Vulcans meeting humans as a homogenous unit. It is a question of Vulcans encountering a fragmented planet and ultimately acting in the Vulcans' own self-interest. If anything, I think a show about the fall that's as much about the Vulcans and that it's as much about how the Vulcans are changed by their encounter with Earth and the compromises that they make along the way would be an exceptionally interesting a- angle to take, that it's not just a one-way exchange. Yeah, um, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's definitely going to be a big factor because we do know explicitly from Enterprise the Vulcans are there and they are essentially managing our affairs. So then the question is, okay, how do you have some of these other much worse things going on uh in the world i did i did want to just quickly toss something out because uh when you were talking about australia there i have a running gag with some of my friends that um uh, it's possible that uh we always talk about mad max uh, and we say you know what if mad max is actually just set in the fast and the furious universe and that's just how australia is <laughs> in, Ma- <laughs> in the fast and the furious world like that's just every the, the rest of the world is completely normal it's just australia is this crazy place where uh, everyone's in uh, in uh, things but like that that actually does sort of provide as a joke but it does provide like an, an ethos for what we could think of you know going forward like this um mm-hmm. it's it's worth noting that this would be a world that had even before whatever war that takes place um it would be a war that uh, a world that had been transformed by the rise of uh the uh the the supermen the khan and his his gang uh they conquered the world and they divided it into like these various rulers all ruled a portion of the world presumably there was even if that only lasted a few years which i think makes a certain amount of sense um that um because they they got a lot done quickly because they were supermen, but also uh, I don't think you could that that's going to hold for very long, um, and um, uh, they that world was uh, would have been transformed quite a bit in a fairly short time. So it's not even that it's our world and then climate change and nuclear apocalypse and so on. It's there was some attempt to organize it in a presumably not that great way. Although it is interesting to note that uh, given. Kirk and, and McCoy's, not Spock's, but Kirk and McCoy's reaction in Space Seed to Khan, uh, they don't think of him as like Hitler necessarily. They think of him as more as someone like, I think we talked about this, we, they think of him as more as someone like Julius Caesar or uh, Charlemagne or uh, Mohammed or someone who conquered a lot, but whose policies were not inherently bad, except that he was a conqueror. The, the point of Space Seed is literally... Well, how would you like it if you may admire a historical figure as this great man? How would you like it if he was there right now trying to conquer you? That's kind of the point of Space Seed. But to, mm-hmm. for that to work, you have to just assume that he's not evil per se. He's just, I mean, he is arguably, but that's a, a debate about how historical conquerors work. That's the point of the episode. So, um, 
you know, Khan's uh, rulership of the world is not necessarily something that would turn into 1984 and the end of the world. Maybe Khan was actually trying to struggle and fix some of the problems we're, we're dealing with right now. Maybe he's the guy who said, hey, you know what? I can fix climate change. Make me the unquestioned ruler of the universe and uh, I'll get us all uh, off of uh, fossil fuels in a couple of years. I'll, I'll solve world peace, which they kind of did, as far as I can tell. Uh, everything will be great. But of course, nobody wanted to be ruled by Khan and they eventually threw him out successfully. Um, that uh, raises anyway. I've I've got so much to talk about here. Um, I should I mean, go yeah. back to the uh, I should go back to the Vulcans <laughs> though, because um, as you mentioned, um, they are the um, we know that they're there overseeing us, and I don't think it's ever really explicitly spelled out on Enterprise. But one of the fascinating things about that is the Vulcans are treating us the way Star Trek and the, the Starfleet and the Federation treat everyone else. They are prime directiving us, even though they don't have the prime directive. That's per interesting. Se. But it is, it, in many ways, that is, it's Deep Space Nine, except the Vulcans are the Federation and humans are the Bajorans. That's kind of what we're, and the humans are also the Cardassians. Like, that's kind of what we're looking at here uh, it, from that perspective. And it is very much uh, that classic Star Trek setup in that, in that regard. So um, you can definitely tell that part of the, that story in that sense. And the Vulcans, as you say, they're not heavy interventionists. They're not going to be there in your face all the time. So that would explain why we do have parts of the world that are not faring so well, even after the Vulcans are here. Uh, they're just trying to nudge us very gently and not hand over cool technology or start telling us what to do in a way that might lead to this flare-up of these uh, these uh, dictators who still want to rule, and that's something I want to get to as well. But uh, actually, what I want to mention, just before I toss it back to Dylan, I do want, I do think there should be space travel in this show. And again, that's part of the whole unevenly distributed thing. Uh, I mean, we know Khan got away on the Botany Bay, so there's got to be something like that. In fact, I think the Botany Bay is warp-enabled, in fact. Um, so uh, I, I could be mistaken about that. I don't think it yeah, says. I, I, I'm not sure. It, it, uh, it couldn't be. I'm... Yeah, because it's from 1996, yeah. and that, and they invented warp drive in 2016. Uh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> and it's it's like a sleeper right. ship. Well, I do I do like to say, like I say, I I don't the 1996 date is the one date I think we have to mess around with a little bit for this to work um but um nevertheless okay so one way or another they had some kind of space travel so and if and either way obviously zephram cochran invents warp travel so humans now have some kind of space travel it's not out again it's not out of sync with some of the uh some of the worlds that um, Star Trek and Starfleet encounter, uh, that they have some limited space travel. They've colonized their system, but they haven't necessarily moved out of it. Um, I think if we have space travel and we have Earth starting to set up Martian and uh, colonies on, you know, Titan or, or Venus or wh what have you, uh, and maybe some very limited, very slow-scale warp travel, which is the kind of thing Travis Mary Mayweather did in Enterprise. Uh, maybe they're starting to branch out and explore some of the local uh, local uh, nearby uh, systems as well. So very, very, very early space travel. It also allows them to run into, uh, you know, Tellarites and Andorians and some of the other Star Trek races. They could have some limited... So it still feels a lot more like Star Trek if that's going on. There's all kinds of problems here at home, but we will be taking our first very tentative steps out to the galaxy under the aegis of the Vulcans. I think you can have both of those two things. I think that's definitely something. 
So, Dylan, I don't know if you want to weigh in. Sorry if you're in the middle. Oh, I'm, uh, you go past me. I'm jotting down a couple things on paper because <laughs> I don't want to be clickety-clacking during our recording. But oh. I, I have I have some sort of story structure ideas. But I think that we I'm trying to organize our thoughts a little bit. So keep talking. I'll I'll raise my hand. Okay, Dylan. Or Douglas, over So here. while yeah. Dylan's writing, I like the idea of Khan Noonien seeing as a frustrated, misunderstood technocrat, the Pete Buttigieg of the New York City. The one who's proposing centrist The trains run on solutions time, but they also explode. The, <laughs> yes, the Khan promised to you. Yeah. <laughs> He's he, he's trying to reorganize in, uh, international warp travel, and it's all going terribly wrong. <laughs> and he's just being absolutely clowned on genetic supermen t- Twitter <laughs> as being uh, um, hopelessly ambitious. And um, that's why he left Earth. He was being he was being dunked yes. on online too much, and he decided he had to take off. <laughs> yes. He, he was ratioed so severely <laughs> he had to change schools. Just imagining Khan Nudian Sung, world conqueror and terrible poster. <laughs> yes. yes. Elon Musk of his day, as it were. Yeah. That's why he called it the yeah. Botany Bay, to reflect the ultimate fate of the convicts sent to Australia. Cancellation. <laughs> Which is actually, uh, in terms of the idea that Mad Max is Australia in the Fast and Furious universe, my one gripe with the Mad Max franchise is the idea that Australia would descend into anarchy. I think that Australia is going to go the entire opposite way because the thing about being descended from a penal colony is not that we are descended from convicts. We are descended from prison guards. That's the <laughs> fundamental aspect of the Australian character. Rules and queuing. <laughs> so I, I think it's a really interesting idea that you've pitched, the idea of a world that is at once fragmented such that it has space travel that parts of the world are expanding into the universe and parts are not it's almost it's what it really puts me in mind of is kim stanley robinson's mars trilogy which in its way probably had as big an impact on me as star trek as an impressionable teenager i reread it a few years ago and it was like a light switching on oh that's why i think that that so the have you have either of you read the master? I, I know a lot about it, but I haven't actually read it. No. Oh, this is almost as much fun as getting to explain the power break. <laughs> um, so, the Mars trilogy postulates a Mars colony beginning in the distant, far-off year of twenty twenty-seven, which obviously no one thought in the year nineteen ninety-six was possibly within reach. Um, and from there on in, sort of the con- the diverging parts of Mars gradually undergoing terraformation over the course of about 200 years and Earth. One of the things that might be worth looking at in terms of how we structure this show is that the Mars trilo- in the Mars Trilogy, um, human, lives, human lifespan dramatically expands over the course of the series. So the characters who we're introduced to as the founders of the Mars colony in 2027 end up living for about 250 years. So we follow them well into the 23rd century. And in that way, we can see in a story that's told over a long length of time with significant gaps between encountering the characters, how things have evolved over a historical time frame. But one of the interesting ideas is that Asmars become um, bit by bit gradually more utopian, adopting sort of a post-capitalist 
communal semi-anarchist political structure that earth becomes increasingly overpopulated increasingly authoritarian increasingly governed governed by what it Kim Stanley Robinson terms the meta-corporations, corporations that have the powers of states, not just multinationals, but corporations that have become states in a way. And so that idea that Travis Mayweather's ancestors are travelling out into space and that humankind is fragmenting in that way, that it's not simply bound together in a single arc on a single planet, but that you have people, humans, becoming increasingly increasingly estranged from the remainder of the human race. One of the really interesting things that we see on Enterprise in the first few episodes is the, the lost colony of Terra Nova, the idea that the first human colony after a disaster no longer see themselves as human at all. And why should that just be one colony? Why can't you have the human race increasingly splintering and encountering aliens and even for... Uh, uh, the idea of divergent human races who are of mixed descent, human and alien, or humans who have renounced Earth, or humans who have consciously turned their back on the failed Earth experiment. I think that that, that idea of fragmentation, not just on the planet, but the idea that it's increasingly difficult to say what is and is not human, is fascinating. Dylan. We have so much potential here in stories, and a lot of things, of course, we could, we could point to places in other fictional universes have been played with like the expanse or uh foundation or uh, i don't know what books have i read um but i think we're talking about trying to design a television show in the world of star trek and i think that we got to wind it back here and to kind of start selecting the angles that we want to use i think that we have our goal right is to demonstrate sort of the multifaceted world that we're inheriting perhaps across a series of time so i think there's basically two structural models that we can work with here we're basically stuck between choosing the wire or game of thrones are we going to take each season and tackle an idea from multiple different angles like uh i have here written down like basically this chart like the different kind of reactions that human beings would have to the vulcan's arrival because that's our inciting incident right that's our flashpoint so we have basically you can fear the vulcans you can worship the Vulcans, you can try to understand the Vulcans, or you can try to exploit the Vulcans. Uh, and those are sort of different angles that can be all be looked at from, I think, uh, a couple of different character perspectives. And But we also could look at it in terms of uh, the sort of... Um, uh, fracture it into the sort of different things that Star Trek is sometimes about. For instance, we can do the exploration and maybe sort of commerce angle to the reverberations of the Vulcans. We can deal with the social-political upheaval. We can deal with the technological and scientific advancement, get some of our weird science episodes. And we want to make sure we always have that outsider's view. We have a great input for that. And, uh, Douglas, I like the idea of maybe using the fact that Vulcans are long-lived to make that our through line if we do multiple generations. But I think because we have all of these different angles we want to hit, I think we first have to decide, are we doing a single setting in time and trying to tackle all of them chronologically together over the course of our series, or are we going to take the wire angle and we're going to pick a subject for this season of the show, and then when that season's over, we're going to pick another topic, we're going to have some characters move over, we're going to have some characters drop off, and maybe have a time skip and see what this story is about. Uh, it's a big question. Oh. Yeah. Adam? I, I, uh, I'm going to propose uh, that we... 
fall a little bit between the two things. I, I wouldn't want uh, the show, this being Star Trek, uh, I wouldn't it want, want it to be a Netflix-style show where uh, it's a 12-hour movie or whatever per season. I, I would really like the opportunity to spe- tell a different story every episode, and I don't think any Star Trek has really been like that except maybe like season two of Picard. And even then, you can kind of see them trying to be like uh, an individual contained story in a lot of them uh doesn't function quite as well as it could in season two of picard but um they they are trying to break it up there's a larger arc in discovery in picard but they're still trying to say this episode's about this and this episode's about this and this um one thing i noticed is that um in enterprise which is of course the closest in time to what we're talking about um they actually did mention that the sort of end goal of enterprise which was the founding of the federation where archer was there uh was going to be happening at a time frame that was about i don't remember if it was a decade or a little more than that uh after the events of the show so the show was presumably not planned to run for 10 more years when they, and that was like two or three years into the show when they said that. So I don't think the show was planned. They were going like, yeah, we'll actually run 10 more years or 15 or 20 more years. They were going to do something resembling a time jump. So I kind of want to propose the idea that there will be one or two time jumps on the show, but not, so we'll do a season or two at one time zone. Then we might jump forward a little bit. Then we might jump forward a little bit after that. Um, having a new cast is an interesting idea. I think that's actually, real, like partially, again, we can keep some people like Vulcans and so on because they're long lived. Um, that's a really interesting idea. Um, yeah, that's actually uh, that that's actually really cool. I'm I'm down for the idea of that, like maybe we see, we, we, we end a season and then we pick up with the, uh, with some other people that said i think if you go actually if you go multi-generational you do start to run into um um maybe getting away from some of the interesting political dynamics that we want to talk to so maybe there's like one big time jump at one point in the show or two instead of a lot but but it's definitely something to think about it's very interesting uh dylan but yeah i i think I, i think definitely that would be a cool thing to structure the show around it a time jump or two what do you think douglas I have consistently agreed with the immediately previous person to speak <laughs> the last few times. Because <laughs> following Dylan's really interesting division of a Game of Thrones show or a Wire show, I instantly thought, how cool would it be to have the American horror story style of Star Trek mm-hmm. show, where every season starts on, um, what is it, April 4th, 2063, and we see a different group of characters over a different time frame reacting to that event from a different time, uh, uh, from a different theme. So season one is Star Trek After the Fall: Colon Hope. It concerns what happens to the people who are immediately in Bozeman, Montana. How Vulcan first contact affects their life. Season two: After the Fall: Colon Fear. We see going back to that same time frame the distant rumors of first contact in. Bozeman, Montana, but it's nothing but an urban legend somewhere else in the world, and how their lives evolve very differently in a completely different political and social context, because what's happening in Bozeman, Montana is, in every sense, a world away from them. So the season that's about how this empowers reactionary elements among humans, the uh, season about how it drives um, 
economic and cultural change, a season that's purely from the Vulcan point of view, the idea of this single flashpoint incident and how it affects different groups of people, whether over the space of a season or over the space of arcs. But then I heard Adam speak and I changed my mind <laughs> because Adam is right. We are... At, the Star Trek universe is interesting, but I don't think that it is making a Star Trek show is purely just a question of setting it in the Star Trek universe. It has to be in some sense in its DNA Star Trek other than just using races that we know and building out of events from TV shows from a long time ago. And I think part of making it a Star Trek show is maintaining that episodic element, building upon the strength of how Star Trek tells stories. So the idea of a purely anthology show or a show that is purely that is structurally experimental in that way, I think probably goes too far away from how Star Trek has traditionally been constructed. But I still really, really like the idea that this of seeing the ripple effects of this one event. I think that necessarily requires you to look at it over a long period of time. Uh, yeah, can I jump in? Sorry, Dylan, just to jump in. Uh, I realized uh, there was something I was going to bring up actually related to this. Uh, I don't know if you guys, speaking of science, uh, so to bring in my own science fiction uh, story, uh, Octavia Butler's Earthseed trilogy, or, either of you, or rather duology, are either of you familiar with that one? Um, it was a series of books that actually has a lot in common with what we're talking about. Uh, Octavia Butler, of course, wrote the Xenogenesis uh, series. She's pretty well known these days. Um, she wrote um, a, a two books, and I don't know the actual story behind this. I could be wrong. I always got the impression she wanted it to be a long, ongoing series. But they are about the apocalypse, about the breakdown of human society. But it's also about the birth of a group of the 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 main character of both books is someone who basically has decided that even as society is collapsing all around her, uh, she is clinging to the hope that humanity will eventually reach the stars, effectively dreaming of Star Trek as the world collapses around her. And she literally starts saying, I'm going to start making a long-term plan that is that I'm never going to see in my lifetime, but I'm going to start making a long-term plan to build towards human humans taking themselves out into the stars and building a uh, star-faring society, which seems like a ludicrous thing to believe as we're like being, uh, we're, we're seeing like authoritarian, uh, violent gangs roaming this, the countryside and, and, and the, the, the climate uh, collapsing and everything happening. But I'm still going to believe this. And in fact, she talks about starting a religion somewhat uh, in a calculated way of like, well, like it, it's not, this is, it's something she believes, but it's kind of like this can give hope to people it's it's not cal cynical but it is sort of a i'm going to start a religion in order to enforce these ideas uh she talks about it now the book only the, the there's only two books and they don't get that far into the future so i always wondered if she wanted to have it span many centuries and have it develop over the years into this religion um or she just didn't finish it or she lost interest. I don't know exactly what happened. Uh, I don't have a story. But that is actually a very interesting idea for this potential series. In uh, Future Tense, it's Future t uh, future Tense, Present Tense, uh, the Deep Space Nine episode, the two-parter with Past Dick tense. Miller. Past Tense, you're so close. Past Tense, Past tense. sorry. I always forget the title. <laughs> there is an episode called Future Tense, but it's um, Enterprise. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yes. Enterprise. That's why I'm getting confused. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yes, that the episode... Um, which is set in our near future. Uh, we see, I think it's 2030 that episode is Next set. Year. Yeah. Um, 
No, it's twenty. I think it's twenty twenty. Yeah, it's yeah. it's almost here. Yeah. Well, the Pic- the Picard season two is set in twenty twenty four, and I think it was a callback specifically to past tense. Um, but one of the things that you see in that episode is that after the Bell riots, and you see everyone, and it's seen as this pivotal flashpoint for human society because people saw this and finally woke up and said, "We got to do something about this. We gotta we gotta fix our society." Now, if you're observing this as the larger arc of Star Trek and you go, oh yeah, that's the moment everything changed for Star Trek. That is clearly not true because (laughs) we now have decades of atomic horror, Vulcan first contact, all these other much more pivotal events happening in the Star Trek universe that are going to shift the the course of human society. However, I, I, once again, I don't think there's a conflict there to say that something was born on that day. Somebody, Dick Miller, the Dick Millers of the world, God bless them, uh, saw saw what had been going on and said, we're not going to stand for this anymore. Not that, of course, we don't have people who care about this stuff in our world and have for centuries before this. But they kind of went, we got to do something specific about this. And we don't know exactly what it is, but we know it was pivotal. I would like to suggest that was the moment, not really, that was... The moment, not the moment where Ruby sp- st- speaks to, st- uh, to Captain Picard in First Contact, but that was the moment where the Federation was born. And that there became a movement that came out of that, which grew and lasted and struggled and was beat back many times over the coming decades and all the horrific stuff, but that held on to a glimmer of hope that tried to build this world out of, uh, as it was suffering through this century of horror. And that uh, they eventually at the very least, inspired the creation of the Federation, Starfleet, or the things that we see in Enterprise that become the Federation and Starfleet. They are the ones who were the the torchbearers. They were the ones who kept the lantern lit during the Dark Ages that are coming. Um, And that what's interesting about that is that they're not, they wouldn't be an authority. Like, when you see... Uh, I've been listening, I think I mentioned this, I've been listening to a lot of the Revolutions podcast by Mike Duncan, which is really great. And uh, it it really does, among many other things, it reminds me historically of how a revolution is a bunch of outlaws um, until they're the government, basically. And we talked about this with Andor, uh, Douglas, when I was talking about Andor as well. This is something Andor is talking about, too. Mm. Uh, when Before you, get in, you become the people in charge, you are criminals. Uh, you are, or at the very least, you're outsiders, you're marginalized. Uh, so to see the idea of what if we saw the Federation and Starfleet as a group of people with absolutely no temporal authority, as a tiny pack of people who just wanted something better and had no immediate means to make it happen. They just wanted to be fighting for it. Um, and that's a, a thread that I think could really uh, animate the show. Dylan, uh, you want to say something? Yeah. All right. So I feel like I have an idea about we're talking about. So we're throwing away the idea of these sort of like um, – wild overarching structure and we're trying to bring it back to the classic structure of a Star Trek episode if we want to go back to that then there is sort of still value to doing kind of an old school uh, sort of like arrive at a place confront a problem story and I think that there's a way that we can put a lot of our ideas together by making it really simple and basically making making this show structurally a lot more like it came from the mid 70s and that is we start in Bozeman, we, we meet a group of characters who, including at least one Vulcan uh, from, from the ship that lands, and they say, okay, we're basically going to spread the news. And they hit the road, kung fu style, 
is the idea of heading towards a particular goal. This structure is not dead, by the way. The Last of Us is basically this. Um, hmm. But it's um, where uh, you will have overarching storylines, but the idea is you have this group of characters who have a destination in mind, but their goal mostly is to stop places, have conversations, see what's up, help to solve problems, and establish the network that becomes what we think of as our united Earth. Um, and you get to explore it from different angles, depending on the party that you bring with us, right? You'll have your main human viewpoint character, who, if we want to play it kind of safe, is our idealistic, our our uh, ancestor to our Starfleet people, our Edith Keeler, right? Um, who has decided we're going to embark on this. We've brought this Vulcan to show this person. We're, sh- we're showing the Vulcan who we, who we are, and we are also introducing them to this person, to the idea of everything's different now what are we going to do about it but along but along in this in this whether it's you know uh a caravan of that's traveling or you know a quartet of people in a in a truck or whatever you have your cynic or potential potential would-be trader who hopefully will turn around you know someone who's someone who's got their own agenda and maybe wants to subvert this whole idea and then you will have maybe somebody who could be your swing vote right um who who has like or, or maybe even somebody who has has that sort of um, starry-eyed adoration and wants to believe that all the problems have already been solved by dint of this Vulcan being here and has to kind of be disillusioned a little bit and, and understand how it's going to be much, much harder. So we can have, I don't know if it's a, a quartet of characters or it can be the kind of thing where characters will join and leave and drop off. We have a, an easy device to add and keep characters or drop them off places or kill them off or whatever as we feel like it. And we can travel to these different environments um, first domestically if we want to start on the literal road in uh, in the northwest of the United States. And then um, travel from place to place, see what this world looks like from a lot of different angles, and to try and measure what effect the larger revelation of the Vulcan's arrival would have in each of these environments with each of these groups of people that each gets to reflect a different thing back to us. So in other words, Adam, you're, in other words, Dylan, you're saying they're explorers on some kind of Earth Trek. <laughs> what, if, what if we called it Earth Trek? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's just let's, so Let's perfect. make ourselves no, I... the laughing stock of the internet from the first press release of the new show. <laughs> yeah. it's I, I, I love that your idea... I love that our ideas about the birth of, Federa- birth of the Federation have evolved into somewhere between a high-budget remake of Kevin Costner's The Postman <laughs> yes. and the idea that Federation ideals basically began with Mormons. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that yeah. our main characters, week by week, knock on people's doors... And say, have have you seen the good news? Look at this guy. So Jehovah's Witnesses, not more than Mormons. (laughs) That's why we need to have an objective. Like they have to have somewhere they're trying to go to do something, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Like maybe maybe it is a matter of this Vulcan being like, okay, take me to your leader, and like, okay, we could get in your ship and go right there, or we could take the long way and you have a better idea of who you're dealing with. And along the way, as we're headed towards, let's. I mean, it's Star Trek. Let's say maybe San Francisco. because we don't know what the state of different governments in the U.S. are at this point. We can decide that later. But if we want to go with the iconography, if we want a longer road, then we would maybe go to the East Coast. Because then, the, But we can figure that out later. We want to go to a place and say we're going, to, we're going to go somewhere where we can really start things going. But in the meantime, let's 
test the waters and let's give you an idea of what's happening so that we, the audience, can have an idea of what's happening. I mean, one way to do it would be ship lands in Bozeman, Montana. First encounter is great. The Vulcans say, great. Now, that where is your leader? And they say, we're not entirely sure. Last we heard of the president, they were in Washington, D.C., but they didn't look too good the last time that we had TV footage. And the Vulcans say, great, we're going to take off to Washington, D.C. Takes off. Ship is immediately shot down by old automated anti-aircraft defenses. Of course it is. <laughs> you can even have the triumphant Star Trek music oh. playing as it takes off, ET style. Oh, come on. <laughs> We're not going to be that cynical. Vulcans are stranded on it. <laughs> no, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> I am. So. Okay. Vulcan, yeah. So the Vulcans are stranded on Earth. They still need to make first contact with the nation's leaders because that's how first contact protocol goes. But also, in a real sense, they've just been shot down. If they don't have an opportunity to speak to the leaders of the United States, that will be considered as an act of war against Vulcan. And so they have to make the long trek through the United States um, to take us to your leader. And yeah, I, I agree with the idea of starting domestically because Star Trek always has started domestically with you know, the nation where it is made. Um, but then from there, expanding outwards and expanding out temporarily, following these characters as the trek goes from being a single instance to a broader way of life, that these are the characters who are, as Adam said, carrying the torch, carrying the flame, the idea that they come to represent more than just a journey, but a movement. I, 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 I So I'm going to just uh, point out that, uh, as I said, like, if, if, we, if the idea was... Um, like the things that we were talking about earlier are about like there could be some limited space travel there could human society could have changed a little bit uh if we're starting immediately after the events of first contact then that doesn't really allow us to do that and it would be an earth-based show rather than a space-based show and i do feel like again i like that that there's very limited space travel just to make it a bit more of a star trek show encounters with aliens things like that now but again, folding in what Dylan said, if we do do time jumps and we do do something that's a bit wire-esque, we could have a season that is Earth Trek, essentially, uh, before jumping forward uh, a decade or so, and then maybe again a decade or, or something like that, joining a new cast. That's not, that, that, that I think works. That, that meshes pretty well uh, with those ideas uh, because we can see this neo-proto-federation not even a federation. I don't know what you'd call it <laughs> because it's let's call it proto federation, even though federation needed to ha ha do all this other stuff before it got going. Uh, but this human uh, united earth nonsense there, there is actually a whole speech in uh, a counter at Farpoint. Uh, I literally just watched that scene to prepare for this uh, where Q uh, at voicing as uh, one of the, as the judge, the post-apocalyptic judge, he says, um, um, all that there was a movement you know he they talk about how there was a movement in 2036 uh and all this advancement of human rights and then uh, in 2079 they put an end to all that united earth nonsense uh you know so it's again it's the regression that happened apparently at this point and um so clearly like there was a united earth movement that was happening at that particular point uh so that does link up very nicely uh with that idea so i do really like what you're saying but i do feel like i'd want to expand the scope of the show eventually even if it was so if we did go season by season that's not a bad idea well well the arrival of the vulcans potentially at the end of our first season gives us that opportunity to then branch off where 
our character's objective in season one, in addition to stopping and solving small little problems and meeting people and making friends along the way, blah, 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 they get there to DC and they try to basically head off the conflict that's coming with the Vulcans. And let's say that they succeed. And at the end of the first season, we had the opportunity to split our show in half and have sort of an inversion of what we've done and have a member of our human party, maybe the cynic from the beginning of the season, who's kind of had his eyes opened a little bit, so he's still a little bit set, still a little bit skeptical and can play that role, now joins a Klingon expedition. Sorry, Klingon. <laughs> that would be a different show. A Vulcan expedition. <laughs> yeah. um, a Vulcan expedition to head back to Vulcan or to explore. Hmm. And then you kind of get a little bit of the opposite story of this is now a human getting to understand the intergalactic community. Um, and we don't have to stick with one or the other. We can then be telling that story with that one character, that one ship, mm-hmm. and also continue to trace the reverberations of our story on Earth and internationally as we broaden the scope of our story. Yeah, I, I love that. Well, and part of why I love that idea and why I'm getting so attached to the character of the cynic, who I've already decided is going to be our breakout character (laughs) and is going to leave the show because his outstanding performance ultimately leads the actor to pursue a movie career instead. (laughs) Um, But so one of the one of my research interests is the history of British colonization in India and the colonial and post-colonial experience of law in India. And one of the fascinating things about that experience is that while colonization is by its nature an authoritarian top-down practice on the individual human level you see uh people react that it changes both colonized and colonizer you see um british people who come to india who are deeply affected and shaped by indian culture and spirituality who renounce the colonizer and identify with the indian struggle for independence conversely you see indians who Um, identify with British mores, British education, British culture. The idea that first contact is not purely going to lead to humans remaining humans or Vulcans remaining Vulcan. You're going to see humans who adopt the Vulcan path because they see in it an answer to uh, to the struggle and hardship and pain that has marked the human experience. You see Vulcans who identify with human culture, who arrive on Earth and realize that it is an answer to the stifling conformity that is Vulcan life. You're going to see Vulcans identifying more with humans than with Vulcans, and humans identifying more with Vulcans than with humans. And at that individual, at the coalface level of encounter of cultures, I think lends itself to really interesting exploration of character and to really interesting stories. Yeah, that's that that that's definitely true, and that is very Star Trekky, as it were. I'm uh, really liking. So I'm I'm really coming around to Dylan's idea of doing the wire. Time jumps to be sure. It would have to be carefully planned, though, because we're what we're, what we'd be seeing here is a period of massive transformation. And if even if you jump forward by five years or something like that, the world would be quite different potentially in those five years than it was, you know, uh, even just a few years before. Uh, so you, you'd be leaving behind certain dynamics unless you planned out carefully, what, which is, I'm not saying that's not a good idea. I think that is a cool idea. Uh, but it's kind of like if you wanted to deal with, um, like, the initial reaction to the Vulcans, Okay, that's in the first season before we jump forward, uh, which I think is fine. I don't think I, I I think that's like a one season long idea, and then we start to do like your idea of having an intergalactic guy going with the Vulcans and, and meeting. And I do like the idea that we can just have an episode with intergalactic guy going off having adventures with the Vulcans, and uh, meanwhile 
leave them alone for three episodes, deal with other characters, and then cut back to them four episodes later, and we've got this diaspora of a cast. That's kind of an interesting idea, I think, uh, going on. Um, I did want to pitch an idea for a character here. Uh, He might be the the leader. In fact, almost by definition, I would call him the leader as we've defined him in the first season. Um, I I really like, again, the idea of... Neo, the pseudo federation, the proto federation, as a kind of a rebel uh, operation. Like again, they're the ones that are struggling in a world that doesn't really want them to exist. That is either uh, dismissive of them or actively hostile because they are promoting things that get in the way of authority. Um, I like the idea of a, someone, a, a military figure, and this is something that's happened throughout history. So this makes sense. Uh, let's say a captain in fact um and who uh, who basically decides that the military he works for is uh bad uh he wants to he's decided i'm going to go off and i'm going to join this organization or i'm going to secretly work for them or i guess with the, the structure we've talked about i'm literally going to defect and join maybe take some of my crews with me um and uh, and that can be sort of the military contingent that maybe gives it a little bit more firepower than just a few scattered people with no power whatsoever. Again, that's there's a historical precedent for that. Uh, and, of course, it has a literal captain as the person in charge. I do like the fact that he wouldn't have the authority of a military backing him, but he would have military... Uh, knowledge, and he'd be someone who was actually capable in a crisis. And of course, Starfleet, uh, Star Trek being as uh, fond as it is of the military and military tradition, that allows that uh, aspect to sort of feed into the uh, story. And it is certainly true that a lot of uh, revolutionary uh, movements have had military uh, people uh, heading up. It doesn't have to lead to a brutal authoritarian regime, which is what a lot of us tend to think when we hear a military guy is taking over. But there are, you know, George Washington was a military guy. Uh, you know, um, uh, Toussaint Levature was a, a military. Actually, no, he wasn't a military guy. What am I saying? Um, but, you know, there's, there's various people of various uh, groups who have split off like that. I also, so this ties into something else I actually wanted to bring in and I really, really would like to have in this show. Uh, I think we can agree we don't want Khan in any capacity. We want Khan to be off the table. We've had enough of Khan. (laughs) I Um, never want to hear a name we've ever heard before on any other show, except for, obviously, Zephram Cochran is going to get mentioned. Apart from that, if if I hear, even in the writer's room, if I hear like the name Kirk, I'm leaving. Uh, I'm yeah, turning yeah, it yeah. off. I'm yeah, out yeah, yeah. of here. <laughs> no, definitely. We do not want. You're really going to dislike the episode on Scottish Presbyterianism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to have Joe, a guy named Joe Kirk, show up in there. Like, yes, I absolutely 100% agree. We don't want the ancestors. I do think uh, Strange New World's ideas of having one of Khan's an- uh, descendants is kind of interesting, but that's been taken by Strange New World. The fact that there might be people descended from the superhumans running around is an interesting one. Um, yeah, that's a reverberation of our political scenario, of our political realities that we might want to explore. So that, mm-hmm. that might also be an acceptable exception to that rule. But yeah. uh, I just published a thing on Polygon today about how about about how legacy sequels, though they're sometimes cool, have led to this really unfortunate thing of there being these fictional dynasties that we're meant yeah. to worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's very bad yes. and lazy on a storytelling level. Now, um, that said, yeah. I do have a character whose name we've heard before, but it's a person whose name we've heard in conjunction with this specific okay. era. I know where you're headed here. I'm with you. 
Uh, you, do you know who I'm going to say? Oh, I'm going to talk about Colonel Green. That is who I'm going to talk about, Colonel Green. Okay. Um, oh, okay. yeah, you, you remember Colonel Green, right, Douglas? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that is definitely. Um, in a real sense, and of course, Star Trek doesn't traditionally have bad guys per se. But if this show... Well, it, that's not true. It does have bad guys. Uh, Colonel Green is our Gul Dukat for this show, in my humble opinion. He is potentially... Uh, he is the guy who represents everything that the human race does not want to become. He is the guy who is probably taking you uh, taking uh, advantage of the chaos that we are seeing right now uh, to build uh, his own power and become the central authority of the world. Uh, we know that there's... Um, uh, this whole thing about him wanting to wipe out uh, mutants and people who are damaged by the post-atomic horror. But that is absolutely a stand-in for uh, corrupt and authoritarian authority in this context. So he is absolutely a character we would, I think, go to at least briefly. Maybe before the time jump, maybe there'd be one period where Colonel Green was the ruler and we'd see his fall and uh, that could, he, like, we didn't have to stick with him for the entire show or whatever, but he is absolutely the uh, Klingon Empire or the uh, Gul Dukat of this show. And I think that's that's a potentially very useful uh, thing to have in this world. And again, it ties in with what we know of Star Trek in this era. Yeah. No, I agree. I like it. So maybe the guy that we're talking about uh, well, is literally uh, like a guy who breaks off from Colonel Green's military. That might be a little brutal, but like, because they're probably pretty mean. Again, I like to think the people we see in Encounter of Farpoint, uh, like Q's squad, might literally be Colonel Green's uh, leadership. That might that actually makes a certain sense to me, uh, that what we're seeing there the po in the post-atomic horror is a, an, at least an offshoot of Colonel Green's uh nation state or whatever um so it, he would be like a pretty brutal authoritarian uh guy so maybe we don't want our hero associated with that but it's a it's a something to consider anyway i mean the one thing that we know about the encounter far point future is that lawyers are put to death and yeah. colonel green was very big on casting out the impure so <laughs> obvious link there yeah um no i really like that idea i one of the things that intrigues me about it is so what if there are competing movements fighting against the anarchy of 2063 earth it's not so much that colonel green is already in charge it's that colonel green is an alternate evangelical path potentially even a splinter from our federation movement the federation movement is moving from place to place preaching the idea that humankind can be united that there can be a better way that we can overcome what we were and maybe Colonel Green starts out that way and it's, it's you know, the standard trope of agreeing with someone right up until they say, and also we should put mutants to death. <laughs> but it, yeah. it starts from that same place of unifying the earth, of the idea of escaping history's gravity, the idea that a better path is possible, that we're not alone in the universe. And Colonel Green employs a twisted mirror form of it whereby the idea is that mankind can be united as long as we all follow the rules maybe even his idea of purity of the idea of improving the species i mean one angle for that would be that he's sort of a, a dead-end holdout from the eugenics wars the uh, carrying on khan's vision provided we don't attribute it to khan because that name is verboten of <laughs> the idea of improving humanity but another idea might even be that he's inspired by the vulcans that he looks to 
Vulcan, the Vulcan emphasis upon order and logic and a society in which everyone has their place within a perfectly ordered structure. And he wants to impose that on Earth, but regards authoritarianism and cleansing as the only way of achieving Vulcan purity among a fallen race. So in that way, Colonel Green isn't just the movement that Star Trek is resisting. He's a twisted form of the ideals they're trying to spread. Dylan? I like that idea, uh, especially since I think, easy as it is, the the most interesting way to to uh, create an antagonist to any protagonist is to create, like, the, the version of it that's twisted and wrong, right? All Batman villains are a reflection. The, the Borg's a reflection of the Federation. The Dominion's a reflection of the Federation, right? But, um, and I I do also think that there's, uh, we should acknowledge that um, the, we think of, because we're told by people in the distant future, that this moment is when it binds humanity together in a way we never thought possible, right? Uh, that there is other life in the universe. But there are, of course, two ways that that can bind people together. One is, you see, our differences are so small. We can get along with anybody, not just each other, but the whole world out there. We're all part of this something bigger. And the other one is, oh, if everything's about us and them, finally there's a them around which all of us can fight against, right? Uh, yes. So you have the idea where it's, it is we can unite humanity because their, their blood's a different color than ours. We all have the same color blood. Humans love to sort things. Um, it's the it's it's one of the it's one of the worst things about us is we cannot help but sort things and sort people. Uh, I I, I, I have to explain like yeah well you know race is a race is a race is a social construct like what do you mean like what I mean is there used to be two different kinds of hair colors in in Ireland and they tried to kill each other. You'll you'll come up you'll come up with reasons. People come up with reasons to divide themselves and to create an us versus them, and it's, again, our worst quality. Uh, it was supposed to just help us tell good berries from bad berries, and instead it's responsible for all war. Uh, yep. um, so I think that that's part of it, where it's just an eye-opening moment in for people in all ways. And I do think it could be not, it could be the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, Colonel Green or whoever could not just be like, oh, I hate the Vulcans because they're different. You could look at the Vulcans and be like, no, 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 they're ahead of us. They're, they're better than we are. And we can't allow that instead of, instead of being, um, we can learn from them and become better versions of ourselves so that we can join them in their stellar community. It's like, no, we have to do what they're doing uh, so that we can supplant them and destroy them and create, you know, our Terran Empire, which we probably won't call it that. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I think I think that's a really important kind of uh, uh, antagonist to create, and I like the idea of it being born within our traveling group because that keeps the threat close to us. It makes it personal for the audience, and it means that the relationship between our heroes and villains going forward in future seasons or whatever will have been seated from the beginning. We'll be able to have an idea at the point of view of our of our antagonist. Um, and it will be kind of heartbreaking when this creates a an, an irreconcilable uh, a, a philosophical difference between just not just our cast but our 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 species. Yeah. So one of our characters in the party. Is named Hank, and he refuses to be called by his last name because that last name represents the family who he's rejected. And over the course of the season, he becomes increasingly dark, twisted, loses his way. And in the final scene of the season, someone says, Hank, what are you doing? And he says, don't call me Hank. 
My name is Hank Green. <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I do I do no, I really like that idea and tying in with the, the whole thing about Vulcans, um like maybe Colonel Green's kind of inspired in a warped way by the Vulcans. Like again, we're talking about like where the Vulcans are in Enterprise uh suggests a lot of things and that actually meshes very well because it's the idea that the Vulcans uh who don't really have the prime directive even though they kind of act like they do. Uh they they sort of invoke the pri- in enterprise they've invoked the prime directive in a way that humans people like archer at least uh feel is unwarranted and is more self-interested and and stodgy at least than really helpful but there is obviously i think an argument to be made that yeah of course you don't want to it's again it's one of the central arguments of star trek you don't want to just rain down uh technology on a on a world that's not ready for it um and um if we say sort of the idea that the Vulcans, without without it being their fault, because the Vulcans are the good guys, um, but the fact that their mere presence could inspire uh, someone like Colonel Green um, is a very good argument for why they're like, okay, tap the brakes. I don't know if I want to get you guys out into the galaxy yet. Uh, at least some of the Vulcans could certainly have that argument. Um, and that and and that of course leads to them going, okay, we're gonna we're not gonna let them start flying in outer space just yet now i like the idea as with a rogue you know human and a someone who's uh uh pushing back against authority i like the idea that maybe there's some rogue vulcans who go no i think uh these humans are pretty cool and i think it's uh, we can help them out and you know we are going to have to get involved a little bit and i like the idea of helping these uh these people with the right idea against these overwhelming uh brutal uh authorities that they're facing down Colonel Green and whatever else is out there, because there's probably others. Uh, I mentioned I thought that this hero who might be a, a defector from the military, um, I said I didn't really want it to be Colonel Green's military, because I imagine those guys are pretty hopeless. They're basically the Nazis. You don't want to do a Nazi redemption story. Um, but um, it's almost like... Um, <laughs> to do a cringe-inducing metaphor, political metaphor, it's almost like uh, Colonel Green is the GOP, so maybe there's still uh, the Democrats are out there uh, fighting him, but they're they're not very good either. <laughs> like they're just they're just all we got, and uh, you know, because mm-hmm. so maybe they're uh, they're they're sort of desperately trying to keep everything together, but they don't have any vision. They're not really uh, looking to war- forward for the sake of humanity. They're just saying, let's keep this uh, Earth as it was in the 20th century going long past the point where it possibly could continue to go uh and so that's this this is where it's really potentially interesting where we currently one of the great threats politically in our world are groups that are just it's like we can just keep the wheel spinning just as it is we just won't let it get any worse and we'll be fine and from where we're sitting because this is the more or less the best world that we know right that's, like, acceptable to a lot of people. Now, if we put that same philosophy into a post-apocalypse that we mm. know not only is it worse than what we have, it's so much worse than they're going to have in the future. <laughs> and we make one of the antagonists of our short, sort of mi- minor antagonist or tritagonist or whatever, the equivalent to, to modern uh, liberal corporate Democrats who are like, no, what we have here is it's – it's fine for now. We don't want to push too hard to change it because it's kind of stable. But what they have absolutely fucking sucks. <laughs> and we know that. And it would drive us insane as viewers 
in a way that I hope would reverberate yeah. back into real life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on season one of Earth Trek, during their trek across the United States, as they passed through Den- the remains of Denver, Colorado, they passed the 2064 Democratic National Convention. <laughs> and they say, we have a Vulcan here. Let's pass a motion celebrating the Vulcans. And the Democrats say, hmm, that might alienate people who don't like the Vulcans. What if we pass a motion acknowledging the Vulcans? And then that is voted down. And instead they move to their long-term agenda, not of cleaning up the rubble, but imposing a 5% tax on the rubble. <laughs> and so the idea that the, it's it's basically like that you the, the the shell of the political party keeps going even though the entire country is on fire outside and it's like the Judean people's front for the life of Brian it reminds yeah. me so much of um, the good place which to me up until strange new worlds was kind yes. of the best star trek show that we have <laughs> um yeah. I mean, it serves that's the same. Exactly. It's basically a philosophy 101 class that's really di- that's really didactic, but in fun thought experiment ways, right? Uh, where you have this sort of council that's responsible for like heaven, where no one's been allowed in for centuries because their their whole system's messed up, but they're they're too paralyzed by the bureaucracy to change anything. Um, great television show. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's we've got we've got oh, we've got so much. To chew on here, this is the trap that we fall into on Are You Afraid of the Dark Universe all the time, which the Dalton and I are like, shit, why aren't we movie producers? Why yeah. don't why why did we why did we live our lives in the way that we do that we have that we can we've given ourselves the challenge of coming up with all these movies that we think would be good. And on that show we actually write out scripts and like reenact scenes and stuff like that. Oh. Um, yeah, I have got and to that then, And then we uh and then we're basically we're either like we're workshopping it, sometimes we'll just be like Damn it! This movie is never gonna exist. We're never gonna. We're never gonna see it. Uh, and now it's like, well, obviously we've got uh, we've got this great show that we've outlined, and we you know we've 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 got it all put together. But we also have to accept the absolute hubris of believing that like the the three of us who have never worked a day in our lives in television. I've just come up with this show, and it's great. <laughs> and obviously, if you just handed us the keys, we could put it together. We could make it work. Yeah, I I, I think so. Well, <laughs> let's not forget a lot of Star Trek was literally newcomers and outsiders pitching sometimes their first script or their first script that got accepted. Oh, sure. Uh, that yeah, was Belinda, one of the great Belinda things. Snodgrass and Ron Moore, whatever, were people yeah. who came in through yeah. the, the submission process. But Yeah. Isn't that but, hubris of believing that better things are possible despite all odds? Isn't that what Star Trek is really about? <laughs> I also well want to add, I think you might you might push back on this. The name of our show is Star Trek First Contact. Uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. That would... I know it's confusing. We now have yeah. an episode of Picard called The Next Generation. <laughs> like, these things... Okay. Is, and, like, there's... I, I think that we've reached the point now where I... People are aware that there are things called the same thing. You know, there's a show called Star Trek. There's a movie called Star Trek. There's an episode called First Contact. There's a movie called First Contact. Now there's a show called First Contact. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yes, that's right. There was an episode. There's an episode called the. Em- there are two episodes called the Emissary. Actually, the Emissary and Emissary. There's the Emissary and there's an Emissary. There's yeah, Nemesis yeah. Voyager. There's Nemesis movie. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Fair enough. I just think that like. And also the idea that if you're like, okay, if you're watching through Star Trek chronologically, you might watch Star Trek First Contact, the movie, and then you'll roll right into Star Trek First Contact, the show. 
Yep. And then you have to watch Enterprise. Sorry, that's the rules. Oh, uh, but you don't have to. <laughs> so how think, much how much deeper do we want to go though is the question. Are we going to start are we going to start doing breaking down characters and breaking story or have we think we've done have we tortured ourselves enough? I think I think this <laughs> is actually a great stopping point. Out of half. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And we're uh, if you don't mind, uh, if unless you guys have anything oh, major you want to contribute, but I think that I think Douglas had a terrific little capper there when he uh, when he said the hubris of thinking things gonna brew. Um, so oh, I've got an even better capper. To be continued. <laughs> <laughs> it's always to be continued, aren't they all? All right, terrific sesh, guys. That was great. That was a lot of fun. Um, I think you could. I do think we could have kept going for <laughs> two more hours if we'd wanted to, or if our voices hadn't, uh, if our voices weren't going to give out, which they are. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's great. This is terrific. Let's uh, put it out there. Maybe some Hollywood producer will go, "Hey, that uh, Dylan Roth kid. He's got some ideas. Let's get him in there." I'm chomping a cigar. That's how Hollywood well, producer. In the fi- in the fiction of Are You Afraid of the Dark Universe, we've been hired by, secretly hired by a member of the Universal Studios crew, right? Uh, and we have to occasionally just wink at that. But it's, it's, gosh, it's, it's, it's torture sometimes to be like, I'm in my, I'm in my 30s. I'm not, I'm not going to make a career change here. I'm just going to have a podcast about fake movies and I'm never going to make a movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm in my 30s and I literally made a career change a few weeks ago. So I'm, you know, I'm holding on. I'm holding on hope. Thanks for everyone for being here. Dylan, thanks for being here. And uh, we'll uh, tap it off here. And uh, just a reminder to everyone, I'm on Twitter at, at Prankster36. Uh, Dylan's at, uh, you're at Dylan Roth, correct? Is that your... Uh, That's correct. D-Y-L-A-N-R-O-T-H. Yeah. And you're... Uh, and I'm at Doug... Mc... Sorry, I'm at Doug M-C-D-N-O-R. Yes. And as we've discussed many times on the show, you should check out uh, Dylan's uh, podcast, uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark Universe? It's great. Uh, I, I think you got you. plenty of promotion from this one. <laughs> I sure uh, did. Thanks a lot. <laughs> no worries. Ooh, and, I actually uh, have something to plug this week for the first oh, time. Oh, okay. Go ahead, please. What yeah. So during the episode, I mentioned my interest in um, the British colonial encounter with India. Um, I've done an interview with Stephen Lawrence of the Australian Legal Pod, of the Australian Legal Podcast, The Wigs, which is available to international viewers on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check the, out my interview with Stephen Lawrence on The Wigs for more on my research on the British experience in India. Sounds very interesting. Yes, if you're smart enough, like either of us, I'm not very well. I don't want to speak to Dylan. I'm not very. I'm not smart enough to understand that, but that sounds pretty cool. Um, so check it out if you're. I like it. Yeah, absolutely. I knew some uh, of those words. <laughs> so until next time, I guess we'll sign off. Uh, Douglas, live long and prosper. And we'll see you on the other side. To be continued. <laughs>